We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand the chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Crossing route, Gurley makes the catch 20. First down, he hurdles. Far side of the field, stays on his feet. Inside the 10, Todd Gurley making his case for MVP. He throws back shoulder. Higby reaches out and makes an incredible catch for a first down. Off his back foot, he throws to the end zone. Cooper Cup leaping to make the catch. Out of bounds, he has it for six. He's got a knee-high snap, looking left. Now over the middle. He pump fakes. He rolls to his right with Connor Barwin pursuing. He knocks him down. The ball is thrown up in the air and batted away. Incomplete. The Rams' defense clinches it. Goff will come on the field for victory formation. The Rams' sideline across the field from us erupts in celebration. And so the playoffs are coming back to L.A. This January at the Coliseum. We, not me, versus the NFC. And for the first time since 2003, the Rams are NFC West champions. Welcome to Rams Talk Radio. This is managing editor Derek Apollo with the former St. Louis Rams defensive end, Kevin Carter. Kevin, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, we're glad to have you on. It's It's not very often that we get to catch up with some of the former St. Louis greats of late. It's been more than some of the L.A. greats. And so it's a really big, uh, it's a pleasure for us to have you on the show. And I guess right away, I want to ask you, how did you enjoy your time with the Rams? You know, my time with the Rams was, um, it was bittersweet. Um, it started off 
and it's just a whirlwind adventure because, you know, I, I was a kid from Florida. I grew up in Tallahassee. I went to school in Gainesville, which was two hours away. And, you know, in my 21 years of life, I'd never lived anywhere else but Florida. So coming to the Midwest, coming to St. Louis um, as a professional athlete, you know, as the first pick, as the, Saint, as the first St. Louis Ram, you know, in history, so to speak, and, and that whole bit, it was a whirlwind adventure. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, the, the luster for the Rams and us being new in the city kind of wore off. And we were just another team that wasn't very good. And we were getting our brains beat in by the good teams, you know, that were out there at the time, which were like the 49ers and, you know, Cowboys. This is the, the mid nineties. So, you know, it went from, from, from a lot of excitement and not knowing what to expect and, a new experience, kind of as a kid, you know, still growing up, um, to getting married. I got married in my second year, uh, before my second season to my, to my, my still wife today, Shima. And so we were, we were kids, you know, we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know, you know, how to, you know, I had to buy my first house and do all these, have all these first experiences in life. So it was a whirlwind adventure. And then, and like I said, the, the luster of it kind of wore off and cause we weren't very good. And my third season, um, I remember a man named Dick Vermeil came into our organization. And his first day on his opening press conference, he said, you know, in three years from now, we will be world champs. He said that at his, at his press conference. And, you know, he said that not everyone who's in this room right now, from a player standpoint, will be here to see it when we get there. Because we're going we're gonna to find out who wants it, who loves it, and who we can win with. And we had, you know, Three seasons there, two years of, of heartbreak, you know, which were which was dismal and and heartbreaking, and we weren't very good getting our brains beat in. And then, of course, you know, my fifth year there, his third season in St. Louis, um, we make history by you know establishing the, the greatest show on turf with Marshall and Kurt and you know Tory Holt and Isaac Bruce and the whole bit, and we 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 did something really special. You know, we, we started what was a really, you know, good team at the time. We, you know, had the makings of a dynasty. And, but, you know, so that, that was my time in St. Louis. It basically went from just a whirlwind adventure and uncertainty to, you know, being on a mediocre team to basically the, the, the most special part was being there for the transition from being mediocre to being a champion. And, and being able to do that for the, the Rams fans was really special. Well, let me back up for a minute here, just just gonna break it down because you just covered a whole bunch of good stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, you did. Uh, you were the like you mentioned, you were the first pick by the Rams when they moved to St. Louis. So, what mm-hmm. was it like adjusting to the NFL, but also to this team moving to a new city at the same time? Yeah, you know that I. I don't, I don't have any other experience to really compare to because, you know, I'd never, it isn't like I, I, I'd gone to a town that had a team and was, and being that it was a new team in St. Louis, that's the only experience that I really have to draw from. Um, it was, I tell you, it, it was total pandemonium when it came to the attention that we received. Um, people, people were going ape crazy just over you know, the fact that there was a professional football team back in St. Louis, um, there was some bad blood. I'd heard about the stories about, um, you know, the, the cardiac Cardinals and, you know, the owner, uh, Bidwell taking the team to Arizona 
and you know how 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 angry they were at the Cardinals leaving. I mean, and and so having the Rams there was a special treat for the fans in St. Louis, and and I and I think at first it kind of gave us a little more leeway when it came to you know wins and losses, but besides just the wins and losses and the football aspect. Um, I had some great times in St. Louis. Met some very special people. The fans were awesome. They were great people, and they supported us, you know, win, lose, or draw. And but for me, being a 21-year-old kid, you know, as a professional athlete, we were talking about just a, a, a whirlwind of a multitude of firsts in my life. I tell you, it was almost like a blur. And it was almost dreamlike, you know, the entire time that I was there because here I was in this new city, but I was very recognizable because I was, you know, just this six foot six, two hundred and ninety pound, you know, twenty two year old walking around, and I stuck out everywhere. Like, you know, you wasn't like if you're in Florida, I was like I live in Tampa now, and there's a bunch of like retired professional athletes around, and so I got kind of blend in a little bit more, but. There and there in St. Louis, man. I got, I still got like a sore thumb everywhere I went. So it, it was, but it, but it was exciting though. It was an exciting time in my life. Um, I was living my dream come true. Since I was five years old, I'd wanted to play professional football, and you know, going to St. Louis, playing for the Rams organization. Um, the Rams organization having such a rich history. I mean, I got grew up watching, you know, the Eric Dickersons and the Fred Dryers and. Um, the Merlin Olsons and, you know, the, the fearsome foursome and all these different people. I mean, you know, I got a chance. I, I met Eric Dickerson. Like, you know, I, I was a part of the fraternity, you know, of great Rams that had come before. And, you know, to be playing for the Rams and make, make the Pro Bowl, make, you know, make all, you know, be named all pro, be named all Madden, be, be, go to the Super Bowl, win a world championship, play in the Pro Bowl, do all those things as a Ram. That was really special because of, like I said, the people that came before me and and what we were able to build in such a short such, such a short time there in St. Louis. Well, what were some highlights of your pre Super Bowl career with the Rams? Of the pre Super Bowl years, you think? Yeah. What were some of the highlights for you personally? I mean, I know there weren't many for the team before that year, but you know, what was your greatest game, and what do you remember about it? Before the Super Bowl season, um, you know, we played a lot of good football, and I think that's what people don't realize. Our our defense was one of the better defenses in the league. I mean, we were we were up there first, like we were probably second or third or fourth, maybe like versus the run. Um, there was no way that we could be up there, you know, just purely versus the pass because we were always behind in a lot of games and didn't have the opportunity to, to do a lot as far as. So some of our stats didn't look as good, but we were we were a tough defense. I mean, we, we still had a lot of the same guys you hear about. I mean, when I was there, we drafted Grant Wistrup. You know, we drafted London Fletcher. Well, well, London Fletcher, funny enough, was an undrafted free agent. Um, but we we acquired players like that. We drafted Leonard Leonard Little. We, you know, I was there when we drafted so many of these people that helped to make our team. But for me personally, I mean, you know, like I said, we played good football. And, and I had good seasons. I mean, the, the thing that gets me is people are like, oh, you know, when you played for the Rams, you know, my fourth, fifth, and sixth years playing for the Rams, I think I had 42 sacks, like 42 and a half sacks over three years. Like, that's more than anyone else in pro football from, like, 1998 to 2001. 
And, you know, someone, I was, I, was, I was working at ESPN last year, and someone told me all these things. They're like, do you know that you had more sacks than anyone, you know, like three-year fan, yada, yada, yada. You led the league in sacks for this period of time. And it's like the only season that, you know, I'm really known for is was the Super Bowl season where I had 17 and I led the league, you know, that for, for that one season. But I, I had good seasons, you know, <laughs> all around that. I mean, I had, I had 12 sacks the year before we went to the Super Bowl. But like I said, no one knew about it. And when you're not a good team, unfortunately, you don't get a lot of attention. Um, but like I said, it just made it made the Super Bowl experience and it made forging that magic and made it all the more special going through those times and, and having persevered through something so tough in order to, to achieve something so great. I still want to know, though. I really do want to know. What was your greatest game in your view? What day were you – that was the day you look back and go, I was at my best day. Huh. It's hard. It's hard to tell, man. It's hard to tell. I, well, I know during the Super Bowl season, during Super Bowl season, I had nine sacks in the month of November. So November was really, really good to me. Um, Super Bowl season. That 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 I do remember because that I was like defensive um, NFC defensive player of the month or something because I had something like eight and a half to nine sacks in the month of November. So those were those were good games. I think I had two games in that game uh, in that. Stan versus Carolina. Steve Berline, poor guy. I think I sacked him like 20 times, you know, <laughs> in our division. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I had some memorable games to, to talk about. Um, I think I had a game versus uh, Green Bay the year prior where I think I, I think I had a safety on Brett Favre in the end zone. Um, you know, the rules have changed or I think that would have been considered a horse collar back then, but um, now. Not back then. So, a lot of good memories, a lot of good memories, but mostly, like I said, of just good people around us. And I was very fortunate and glad that people like DeMarco and Todd Light, uh, DeMarco Farr, Todd Light, Keith Lyle, um, you know, we were all there to see the turnaround of our team. You mentioned the fact that this actually, that there was some good football played before 1999. So, what mm-hmm. were some of the issues that prevented the Rams from becoming that winning team? You know, we were in a position, I think, where in the NFL, in order to be successful, you know, your head coach has to be an efficient manager of personalities. And I think that, you know, being a manager on a pers- of, of, of personalities, if, if you can get everyone who's around you to, to buy in and believe and basically be sold, not sold, but just if they can, they can all believe that their contribution is the difference between winning and losing. I think that's 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 kind of the key, you know, to, to, to forming that championship team. And so, but you know, not that we didn't have that back then, but it just wasn't completely centralized. You know, and and if you've ever been, if you ask any professional athlete if they've been a part of a championship team, there are things that sound the same. The amount of love that we had in our locker room, and I know it sounds silly, but we generally liked each other, you know, the Super Bowl season. And I, I don't think that was the case necessarily before that. We, we had small groups, but never were we completely united in the same way we were that Super Bowl season. You know, some of the issues, I guess, that prevented us from getting there is one of the things was offense. You know, we, we didn't score any points, man. Like, our offense was – it wasn't miserable. It had flashes, but, you know, we went – we went from we went through quarterback after quarterback after quarterback. You know, we we get a 
a Steve Walsh, and we're thinking, oh, he, maybe he's got some magic left in him. We get Chris Chandler, maybe he has some, maybe he can do something. We get, you know, we draft a Tony Banks at Michigan State, and he's promising for a little while, but then, you know, it's not working out there. You know, Jerome Bettis comes from L.A. to St. Louis, but then, you know, doesn't want to be there, and he leaves and gets a big deal, gets traded to Pittsburgh, you know, and then the rest is history with the bus in Pittsburgh. And it's just like, you know, there's so many things that woulda, coulda, shoulda, but never worked out. And and I think they never worked out because we didn't have, you know, the not that we didn't have good coaches. We had a lot of good players. I mean, Coach Rich Brooks did a great job. He had a good staff. There are great people there. But I think having that centralized idea, that, that, that permeating philosophy that from top to bottom, you know, if you're the general manager or you're, the, the practice squad player or you're the, the, the head coach or you're the custodian. I mean, everyone, you know, contributing to that championship atmosphere, everyone believing, everyone doing their part, everyone doing their job. Um, it's a special moment in time. And, and, you know, back in those days, we had so many things that were taking, taking away from that. And sometimes, you know, even your own individual contract squabbles, you know, can get in the way. You know, if, if you have players, if you have high profile players that are in positions as to where they, they're the ones that lead your team and they're fighting through contract, you know, crap, then it may take away from your leadership. It may take away from your, your togetherness. So that's what we were fighting, you know, all those years, just trying to, just trying to get it right like everyone is. And when you do get it right, it's a special thing and no one can tell you exactly what it is. I think we've seen that. In the NFL over the years now, especially, I mean, I guess their example would be what happened to the Cowboys after, you know, after Jimmy Johnson left. And just how the talent was still there, the personality is also at the top chain. I mean, I think it's a great point. I definitely think it's a great point. So with that in mind, the personalities and everything working together, when did you know the Rams had something special going in 1999? I knew we had something special going. Actually, it was the first loss of the season that we had. When we went to play the Titans in Nashville, that's when I knew we were going to the Super Bowl. They were up on us in the first quarter of that game, 21-0 to zero, um, in the first quarter. And, I mean, that stadium in Nashville was rocking. I mean, there were, there were country singers that were on the sideline. You know, there were, I think Tim and Faith did a duet on the, you know, national anthem. <laughs> Um, I mean, they, they, it was rocking, and it was all Eddie George and Steve McNair, and they were beating our butts. They, they jumped on us really quickly, early in the first quarter, and we were down 21 zip. And I, I remember no one panicked, no one, no one screamed, no one yelled, no one, no one lost focus, no one lost control. We simply kept playing football. We came in at halftime, and we were down, I think maybe 21 to either 21, still 21 zip or 21 to three or something like that. And we went at halftime. And I think I never saw Marshall like get upset. And I think Marshall was angry and he walked over and he turned over a table that had some Gatorades and some waters on it. And he turns the table over and he turns around and he looks at the rest of the room. No one says a word. No one breaks stride. We put our helmet, we, we grab our helmets, we grab our stuff, we go back on the field and we play. And I remember walking to the line of scrimmage. And I, I was angry. I was, I was, you know, I was, of course, in the middle of the football game, so I was tense, but I'm yelling at their offensive line, at Titans' offensive line. I'm looking at John Runyon and Brad Hopkins and Bruce Matthews, 
and I'm looking at Steve McNair, and I'm like, you guys aren't going to score another point. I'm like, I'm like you guys aren't going to score anymore. You know, I'm like, and and so, and of course, we ended up losing that game 24 to 21 on a last, on like a, a fourth quarter field goal by Al Del Greco. And I think, I think he picked like a 45 or 50 yarder. And I think Jeff Wilkins, we were, we were driving down at the end of the game to try and win. I think with time expiring, we took like a, a 58 or 60 yard field goal and we barely missed it. But walking off that field, like I, I went over and I was, I was talking to Eddie George after the game and I'm like, dude, y'all better hope we don't play all again, you know, in the Super Bowl. <laughs> and I remember having a laugh about it at the time, but you know, that's, I knew we had it. I knew when we were down 21 points and we didn't blink and we, we, we simply just kept playing and we didn't miss a beat and no one pointed the finger and no one, no one lost their cool. I knew we had it. And then we went on from there to, you know, to really not want that feeling of losing a game ever again. And so we, we, we did what we had to do. We controlled our destiny and, you know, we gained our home field advantage. And, you know, that's a special, special moment in time, but, you know, that's why we were able to do that. I mean, that's when I knew, you know, mid-season, I think it was, I think it was week seven. I think we were, we, we were six and oh, or seven and one and, or something like that. And they were six and oh, or six and one at the time. Uh, I remember, I remember that game. <laughs> I remember, I remember the Detroit game too. And, and then I was like, hmm, okay. The, the, wow. You know, these are great games. They, they lost, they're close. And then you guys pretty much dominated everybody till the end there. And it was very special to watch. But you mentioned, you know, it was all the way out there, you know, the Tennessee game. This is weeks after the Trent Green injury. So how did that injury affect the Rams locker room? And, and when did it become clear that the Rams were going to be fine with Kurt Warner? That the funny part about that is um, I remember having a conversation with my dad and my, my dad was like, you know, he's like, what's going to happen? You know, Trent's hurt. What are you guys going to do? And I remember saying, dad, like, we're going to be okay. You know? And he's like, I know I saw coach for you know, crying, giving the speech saying, we're going to rally around Kurt Warner. We're going to play good football. But I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, Dad, I'm telling you, like, this guy, Kurt Warner, is pretty good. Like, I saw him, like, he ran our scout team. And, and he and he used to kill us on uh, as a scout team quarterback. Like, he never missed. I'm telling you, Dad, we're going to be okay. Like, we're strong enough everywhere else as to where we're going to have a – we're, we're going to be really good this year. You know, and I told him this. And, you know, Kurt, of course, stepped in and didn't miss a beat. And, and not only that, you know, he was, as his offense started to grow, as we started to discover more and more of our stars, so to speak, on that roster, you know, as the as the as Hakeems, as the Tony Horns, as the Ricky Proles, and the, you know, we had two catching tight ends, Aaron Conwell and Roy Williams, you know, we had, uh, you know, Torrey and Isaac, and I mean, we just had so many weapons in that offense, and as, and as, as it started to grow, as it started to, you know, undergo a metamorphosis and change and, and get better and better, Kurt got better and better. So, you know, like I said, I, I remember having a conversation with my dad saying that we would be, that we would be okay. I had no idea that we had, we had that much juice, but, um, <laughs> but it, it, was, it was sort of a magical, kind of a magical moment in time when that happened. When this all came together and you get to the playoffs, you guys, we went to war with the Buccaneers in the NFC Championship game. How did you guys feel rematching the Titans 
and what was it like for you to win that Super Bowl? The rematch was was, was very, you know, it was one of those things as to where it's like when I walked off the field, like I, I was, you know, dropping major threats, you know, saying like, dude, you better hope we don't play you again, you know, this and that. But I remembered how tough that team was, you know. I, I was angry because we lost at the time, but, man, that offensive line was massive. They had Lorenzo Neal, who was 265 pounds as a fullback, and he was blocking for Eddie George, who was 250 as a tailback. Like, it just wasn't fair. Like, they had, talk about us having thunder and juice and whatever. Dude, they had, they had dudes. Like, everywhere you looked, they had dudes. I mean, and, you know, Frank Wycheck at a tight end position, Eric Kenny at a, a tight end position. I mean, you know, Kevin Dyson, uh, Chris Sanders. I mean, they, they had dudes. They had playmakers everywhere. And their defense was stacked, just loaded with talent. So I said that, you know, kind of in jest and, and kicked off at the time. And, but in the back of my mind, I knew this was going to be a war. Like I knew this was going to be one of the hardest games I'd ever played. And namely because of, you know, number nine, being a quarterback. Steve McNair, God rest his soul. Man, that dude is, he is, he is the toughest quarterback I've ever played against. Ever. He is the strongest, most physical, toughest quarterback I think I've ever tried to bring down. And that game itself, you know, after the hoopla and the, 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 the confetti and after all the, you know, seeing turn around and seeing Jack Nicholson in the stands behind you or seeing a movie star on the sideline or whatever, after all the, 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 the hoopla and fanfare of this game, the spectacle, wore off. It was just a football game. But it was a hard-fought, tough football game. And and I think that's that's the part that really, you know, really was hard for, I think, you know, at the time to, to really get yourself out of kind of paying attention so much to the hoopla and just playing football. But that game to me, like physically, and I think the physical part combined with the emotional weight of it, um, what it meant, because no one wants to be that team. No one wants to be that player who only has a conference championship ring. You know, I played 14 years in the NFL and I've seen so many different like Super Bowl championship rings, but I've only, but, but I've, I mean, I've, I've seen like Super Bowl championship rings, but I've never to this day, I have never laid eyes on a conference championship ring yet. I, I mean, I've never even seen one in person because no one ever wears it. <laughs> so, and that's the thing. It's like I, no one wants to be a team who loses. And so you've got this weight, you know, on your shoulders and you're trying to, because, you know, you, you know that, like two days before the game, I had a conversation. I had actually had a conversation before the championship game with Howie Long, and I remember talking to Howie Long and to Marcus Allen, and and Howie told me he said, "Look, he says you're so close to the top of the mountain. He says take this opportunity to go out there and make a memory. You know, don't just play this game and don't just you know. It's I know there's weight on your shoulders and you." You know, you want to win and, you know, that kind of thing, he says, but he says, take it as seriously as you need to because you may only get this chance once. You know, he says, look, I was on a team with a bunch of guys 
like this guy here. He pointed to Marcus Allen, and he's like, we had talent, top to bottom. We had so many, you know, great players. And I thought, and here I was, I was, I was a young kid on this team. And I thought, man, all this talent, we'll be back. And he says, I never went back. He said, so go out and make a memory. So in that game, Super Bowl 34, me having to get over the, the, the emotional, physical, the psychological burden of, you know, the weight of the game combined with the physical, it was the hardest game I ever played. Hardest game I ever played. But like I said, it, it, it paid off because I came out on, we came out on top. <laughs> so well, we, 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 we made that memory. Well, I was going to say, he asked you, you said, make the memory. What was the special memory? What special thing from that day did you take with you? There were a lot of things um, that were special about that time. The first thing, I mean, is the fact that, you know, you, you, you're, it's a dream come true. I played 14 years, never missed a game, you know, in the NFL 14 years, but I only played one Super Bowl, and that was it. I found out the morning before we played Tampa Bay in the championship game that my wife was pregnant with our child. I, I now six foot seven inch, 17 year old. <laughs> I, I found out he was on the way the morning of the championship game. It was a special time in our life. It was a special time in my life. I, I was, I was considered by many to be the best defensive man in football. I was happily married. I was, I had led the league in sacks. I was going to have, you know, I was, my wife was pregnant with our baby boy and we were going to Super Bowl. <laughs> you know, it, there wasn't much wrong in my life at that time. And after that game, after having made that memory, I mean, it was even all the more special. You know, the baby was still on the way. I We won the game. We had a parade. I was taken off the next day to go to Hawaii because I was first team all pro. And, you know, so it was like, it was, it was cool. It was, it was a wonderful, blessed time in my life that, that really I, I look back on fondly. And I think when people say that memories like that that are made mean more to you as the years go by, now I see truth in that statement. That's an amazing memory, though. I mean, geez, I, I, I didn't know that you had a little that you found just before the game that, you know, that week prior that you had a little one on the way. So, wow. Now yeah. that now your little one's 17. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. So uh, switching from that, and then you and the Rams, you part ways after the 2000 season, and then you actually go to Tennessee. So why did you, right. why did you, why did you, you and the Rams part ways, and what made you choose the Titans? Well, the reason we parted ways is I can attribute that to the nature of the business. The nature of professional football says that you may form a great team, but you, it will be hard for you to keep that team together, plain and simple. Um, what it came, what it, what it shook down to is we, we had the Rams had a bunch of very valuable free agents at the time. You know, they, they were going to offer contracts to all of us, and some of us were going to take those contracts, and some of us weren't going to take those contracts. And some of us were going to try and negotiate and, you know, haggle for more money. Some of us wanted different playing systems. Some of, them, some of us wanted all kinds of stuff. But for me in particular, it came down to the fact that, you know, we couldn't reach a deal that we both agreed upon at the time. And, and instead of, like, they were going to put the franchise tag on me to, to try and keep me, but then the opportunity came 
from Tennessee at the time. They offered, um, I think they offered like a first round pick in a, in a trade, uh, for me. And so I, I can't remember what the exact details, um, were of the trade, but it was a good deal for, for, for both teams. I mean, you know, the, the Rams did not want to let me or my, they didn't want to let me or my contractor or my position go without getting something for it. They either wanted to sign me or they wanted something in place that would give them the value of having a player like me on the roster and having control of his, you know, playing destiny or, you know, where he suits up. They wanted to get something for that. I mean, so it was, it was totally business. You know, I wanted to make money I wanted to make and I wanted a contract that I wanted. I felt that I had earned it. I'd led the league of sacks for three years at that time, and, you know, I was 27 years old. So, I, yeah, I, it was time for me to hit the home run contract, and we, you know, we, we parted amicably. They traded me away. We couldn't find a deal, so they traded me away. They got what they needed. I got the contract that I wanted. And for me, going to Tennessee was, you know, talking about having a blessed, you know, good time in your life. That was a good time in my life as well. Really enjoyed playing in Tennessee, playing for Jeff Fisher, playing with a bunch of guys that I had not hated, but, you know, um, that I uh, went to war against and, and that we had this, we had this kinship because we were both connected to one of the most important events of our life. And, you know, the, the, those guys were on the other side of it. So I got a different, I got an appreciation from a different perspective, you know, on how a team goes on from a moment like that, mm-hmm. you know, coming up in the big game and coming short. Made a lot of good friends, people that, you know, that I will remember the rest of my life, some good experiences. And it was a good, it was a good, rich time of my life playing for the Titans. It was a good organization, that good people. And like I said, we had, I had some, had some good games there, had good seasons there, went to the Pro Bowl there, went to, when played in the AFC Championship game, we actually lost to the Raiders, and the Raiders went on to play the Bucks. <laughs> in the in the in the Super Bowl that year in 2003, so good memories. It was a, it wasn't an easy transition from the from from the Rams to the Titans. I mean, it wasn't one that you know didn't didn't leave battle scars and, and remarks on both sides. Things that you wish you could take back and you know here and there, but it worked out for the better. The the Rams didn't miss a beat. Two years later, the Rams were back in the Super Bowl, and like I said, I was in Tennessee playing in the championship game three years later and going to Pro Bowls and everything else. So it, it worked out for, on both sides. So years later now, I mean, your playing days are over. What do you want Rams fans to remember about you? I want Rams fans to remember that I was one of the players that when you draft a kid, when you draft someone that high in the draft, when you take them with, you know, a top ten pick, you know, you have this vision that this player – since they were drafted so high and is going to contribute to your program, go grow in your program. In three or four years, that person is going to be, you know, leading the, their respective category in some way. They're going to be in the Pro Bowl. They're going to be helping your team get to postseason play. So for, for Rams fans, you know, they saw me drafted. They saw me grow up. They saw me, you know, become part of a special unit. And they saw me win a world championship and be considered the best in my position in the game at that time. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say that, like, you know, as far as what you as a fan would expect from, from your draft picks and, and you know, what, you know, all the pipe dreams that we have of saying that, oh man, we took this 
was guy sixth overall. He's going to be a Pro Bowl guy in a couple of years, and he's going to be he's going to help us win a you know bring home a Lombardi Trophy. I can say that fans fans who remember when I was drafted, like that's true. It did happen for me that way. So you know that's the cool part. I think that uh, that I think people you know sometimes you know players are drafted all all, all the time. Great players, players that now have gold jackets, but to be able to say as a fan, hey, we drafted this guy. I saw him grow up in the program, you know, he and he became a superstar, and he brought us home a world championship. Hopefully, you know, they'll remember that about me. Hopefully, they'll remember all of the great works, you know, in the community that, that I did. I mean, I got my, my start in really doing charity work on a, on a grander scale there in St. Louis. Um, when I got yeah. to Tennessee, you know, I had a perfected and, and formed some, some major events that, that are still running today. That, that bear my name, but still, um, that's what I hope people would remember about me. Well, I can tell you that's what I remember. I remember your explosiveness off the edge. I remember the way you got the quarterbacks. I remember all those things. And, and I was a teenager. You know, I was going through graduating high school, going off into the military. And I remember myself that season, Super Bowl season, I was out to sea for the Super Bowl. And I was having to watch it on the boat. And I'm watching. With all these, these and most, I was the only Rams fan there. Okay, all these other guys in the room—they were Titan fans. <laughs> they were all cheering for the Titans, and I'm watching Kevin Carter do what Kevin Carter does. And so you gave you gave us memories. You know, you—I I remember actually, you know, praying to God, like Lord, I've been waiting for this for a long time. I will never complain if the Rams never win again. I kind of regretted that later, by the way. But you were part of that memory, man, and so. You know, that's why we reach out to you because we want to hear that. We want to know what, you know, about your life. And then, and speaking about your life, you mentioned your charity work. We are aware you have a foundation. Can you tell us about your foundation and also what else you've been doing in it since retiring from the NFL? Well, after 14 years in the NFL, um, I immediately went into a space where I had no idea what to do with myself. <laughs> so I, I had to figure it out like a lot of guys do. Um, you know, I, I was poised, I guess. You know, with a with a chance to go into public speaking and then go into broadcasting, um, that that sort of became what I actually went into, um, and that's what that's what I did. So I, I literally got on the speaker circuit when I when I retired from football. Still doing a lot of charity work. Uh, still active with the Kevin Carter Foundation. I started working for. I took a job with Fox um, about six six or seven years ago now, um, when I first retired, and. Did a, did a couple of regional college football shows with them for a little while. And then the next year I was on ESPN. And for the last five years, I've been the resident studio analyst for ESPNU. I'm doing their Saturday and Sunday broadcasts and doing shows during the week. Um, this past year, there was, there was some major ESPN attrition. <laughs> so, um, my shows got canceled um, on ESPNU, but I'm still. Doing freelance broadcasting here and there. I'm doing, I've, I've done a couple of games this year. I've done a couple of NFL games for CBS. I've done some college games for Fox. Um, I'm still broadcasting, doing a lot of radio, doing a lot of, um, serious, um, XM radio. Um, so I'm, I'm still out working. I'm, I'm emceeing events. I'm still doing public speaking. And the thing that I'm most passionate about though is the Kevin Carter Foundation. Like I said, the grassroots of my foundation were laid. You know, when I was in high school and college doing benevolent and charitable acts. But when I got to the Rams, when I got to St. Louis, when I started playing for the Rams organization is when I really discovered that I had a chance due to the platform 
that I had, you know, worked into, that space that I, you know, was blessed to get into in my life at the time as a professional athlete, that gave me a platform to do a whole lot of good. It gave me a platform to, to, to get my message out there, wherever, wherever, wherever it is. I mean, that's the thing. When you're someone who's famous, you have this platform. You, you, know, you can use it for good or, you know, or, or doing things that are bad. So I got my start there in St. Louis doing habitat builds and going to different charity events and visiting kids in the hospital and, you know, everything I could do, I, that's what I got into. And then in 2001, when I got to um, Tennessee, at the Nashville, I started the Kevin Carter Foundation. Kevin Carter Foundation has raised over $3 million in the last 16 years. Over 2 million, over 2.2 million of that, um, has gone to Make-A-Wish of Middle Tennessee. Um, I partnered with them back in 2001, um, and really we've grown that chapter so much in the last 16 years, um, through the one event that still it bears um, my name, but it, but more importantly, it's directly tied to Make a Wish in Middle Tennessee, and that's the the Kevin Carter waiting um, waiting for Wish a Celebrity Waiters Dinner, and it's held at the Palm in Nashville. My co-host in this event has been for the last eight years is I'm sorry for the last ten years um, is Jay Demarcus of Rascal Flatts, mm-hmm. and he and I were good friends when I was there playing for the Titans. We both play golf together, and I saw. Rascal Flats go from, you know, relative anonymity to superstardom. Because, like I said, I was, I, I can say that I knew the guys in the band before they were, <laughs> before they were, they were all famous. But, um, but yeah, Jay and I do this event still in Nashville every year, the Waiting for Wishes Celebrity Waiters event. Um, we still host it. Um, we're still proud of it. It's going to be April 23rd this year in Nashville. Out of all the things that we've talked about, out of all the things that I've, that, that, I've, that I've accomplished in my life, the thing that I'm most proud of, the thing that that, that, I'll, that I'll that I'll brag on, the one thing that I will brag on in my life, are two things: my child and my charity, um, my, my my charitable foundation. Those are two things that I'm that I'm most proud of in my life. My foundation has given me a platform with which to do tremendous good in the community. I'm proud to say that my foundation has given away over three million dollars in the last 16 years. That's that, that's a big deal to me, and it it, it 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 reminds me that out of all the things that I may do wrong in my life, <laughs> that's one thing that, that that I got right. That's that that's the thing where I've used my platform exactly how it was designed to be used. Now, and so, we're all human too, so you go out there and, and you know you say all the things you may have done wrong in your life. Well, it sounds like you're doing a lot of great things. So, can you help us? Uh, can you tell the fans where they can go? to donate for the foundation and also where to follow you on Twitter and so on and so forth? Well, they can go to kevin-carter.com. It's my foundation website. Um, There's everything Kevin Carter on that site. Um, Everything about the charity, everything about the events that run through the Kevin Carter Foundation, and, of course, um, the ability to donate, um, all the information, sponsor information regarding the Waiting for Wishes event, everything that we're doing, um, and we're, you know, doing other projects on the side that aren't just having to do with Make-A-Wish, but there are other things that we donate to. Um, everything that we're doing, we're talking about, is on that website. So kevin-carter.com, or you can find me on in the Twitterverse. I am just at Kevin Carter. Um, underscore 93. But if you put in Kevin Carter, you will see me. There's a picture of me holding a football. You can't miss it. 
and I'm also on Facebook. So I'm out there. The Kevin Carter Foundation has a foundation page on on Facebook. So we're everywhere. So there's no excuse not to be able to find me or get involved with the good works that the Kevin Carter Foundation is putting forth because we're we're out there. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So again, folks, you'll find him on Twitter. You'll find him on Facebook. He, he he's got his website again. That's Kevin Dash Carter dot com. You can go there and you can get all the information you need on his foundation. You can, you know, you can contact his foundation there. You can put in requests for appearances. So he's out there. He's out there. Kevin, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, it really means a lot to us for us to be able to get connected with, you know, all these Rams players who can get, you know, a few updated in their careers, updated in their lives. And by the way, you, you are a hell of a Ram. You still are a Ram. Okay. So, uh, thank you. We're, we're proud to have seen you wear the horns. And, uh, again, so, uh, folks, for Kevin Carter, our guest today, this is managing editor Ram, uh, for Rams Talk, Derek Ciapala. We'll see you soon. Take care. control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. The available AKG 36 speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360 degree sound, so you hear studio sound on the road. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.